Welcome to this episode of Shonen Flop, where we talk about manga series and Shonen Jump that didn't make it big. I'm David. I'm Jordan. And this week, we're talking about Samurai 8, and we're joined by our guest today, Gabe. I'm Gabe. Thanks so much for joining us today. Gabe. I'm just waiting for you to say something. Thank you for having me. Didn't expect you to thank you for having me on your show. (laughs) This rude-ass motherfucker. I'm keeping this part in, too. Oh, God. How are we already having fun at the introduction? That's the easy part. (laughs) To get into the manga itself, Samurai 8 is set in a Star Wars-esque fantasy sci-fi world, in which humanity has become scattered amongst the cosmos. Maintaining the peace are the samurai. These powerful warriors are a combination of magic and cybernetics. They consist of those who have died but had a strong enough will to create a new body created from the energy of their fighting spirit, and wield their souls as weapons. These samurai are joined by an equally magical animal companion, their key holder, and a princess that they are sworn to protect, and in return is able to boost their power. The ultimate goal of the samurai is to find and open Pandora's box, a mysterious artifact sealed away by the god of war the box requires seven keys and is said to give godlike power should it ever be opened is there anything you guys want to add to the setting i just want to say uh i was a key holder for over two years so i totally understand that aspect (laughs) of this manga did you uh ever get close to opening pandora's box (laughs) yeah i had to do it every day when i would deposit the cash we made that day at the pet store Ooh, that's right you worked at a petco right pet value pleb sorry i called you coke to your pepsi Deeply offended. My apologies. To move on to the actual plot, we'll play the How Badly Can David Butcher These Names game. The story is about Hachimaru, a sickly boy who is kept alive by a life support system his father, Furata, has created. He's stuck in his house and does nothing but play video games or play fetch with his robot dog, Hayatsaru, which really sounds like my life in Corona right now. It turns out that life support is powered by a powerful samurai sword, and a group of rogue samurai kill the main character to get the weapon. However, our main character is blessed by the god of war, Fudumoyo, and is reborn as a samurai, turning Hayatoro into his magical companion. Hachimaru is trained by the cat-like samurai, Daruma, the main character found trapped in a capsule while playing fetch. Rounding out the gang is Anne, finally a name I can pronounce, <laughs> the main character's fated princess. She is an anxious girl and scenario-like, and has the ability to enhance its abilities eightfold. While training, they are attacked by Ada, an evil samurai who was a disciple of Daruma. Ada is fended off by Furata, who sacrifices his life to save Hachimaru. Ada tells the gang he wants to open Pandora's box, which has the power of creation, and Mandala's box, which has the power of destruction, to remake the universe as he sees fit. It turns out that Hachimaru was created as part of a science experiment by Burata, who was trying to artificially create seven brothers who would serve as the keys to Mandala's box. However, due to Hachimaru's existence, there are now eight keys, which means the box can't be opened as long as he is alive. To prevent Mandala's box from destroying the universe, the gang sets out to space to find the seven keys to Pandora's box. After several adventures, the main character has a final battle of Ada, where our main character discovers that he's actually Pandora's box itself, and gives up his physical form for the good of the universe. Yes, this is just like the ending of Madoka for anyone who's watched that. Oh, yes. <laughs> Our final moment is the remaining members of the gang looking over Hachimaru's gravestone, and now stoic Anne, who has become a samurai, saying that she will keep up the good fight. I don't think Anne became a samurai, David. They said that she looks like a samurai. Oh, I thought she said she wanted to be a samurai. I feel like that ending bit was kind of left up to the readers. You'll find out in Samurai 9. <laughs> also, David, you pronounce his father's name different every time you said it. <laughs> I really had no idea how to pronounce his father's name. I'm going to guess it's Furuta. I really hate this series because of how like weird the names are. Really? You think the names are weird in this one? <laughs> Shut up. I mean, you read JoJo. Well, hold on now. 
JoJo character names are either English names or the names of songs. Yeah, I guess. Are you saying that Hachimaru is easier to pronounce than Joseph Joestar? No, obviously Joseph isn't who I was thinking of, but like, uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever. You read enough manga, I don't understand why you think this one is particularly confusing. Well, it's also because they're really long. Yeah, the names are a little longer. Jordan every week makes me do this section so he can shit on my misability to pronouncing. <laughs> 100%. Jordan literally has been like, David, can you say that name again so I can hear you mispronounce it? <laughs> I just really want to like savor the moment of you butchering this name. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad that I stumbled into your sadomasochistic relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking asshole plot is there anything you guys would like to add i know that there is a lot of kind of like hijinks that they do like this whole scene where they go shopping and then there's a battle royale and they like have to work for the police that really has no plot relevance so i figured why even really talk about it yeah to get into details on the manga the full name of it isn't just samurai 8 it's samurai 8 the tale of hachimaru which i kind of thought was maybe hinting that they were expecting it to be part of a larger universe before the manga just really kind of fizzled out the writer of the series was Masashi Kishimoto, which, for those of you who are an active manga reader, that name might sound familiar, because he created a little series called Naruto, which ran for, I think, about 600 chapters. Oh, I've heard of that! The artist for this was Akira Okubo, who was actually a long-term Naruto assistant, and he really didn't do anything besides being an assistant, so I guess he really like proved himself when he was working on Naruto. And then got cancelled. Mm. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. Yeah. Now, that's a good segue into the run dates. This ran from May 13th, 2019 to March 23rd, 2020, and it ran for 43 chapters in five volumes, putting that on kind of the longer end of the types of series that we would cover in this show. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. I got to like chapter nine and was thinking, oh, cool, I'm halfway through the manga. And then I looked at the chapter list and was like, oh. Something I thought was really funny is I found like an interview where Kishimoto was like, yeah, guys, this is going to be the next big epic. It's going to be at least 10 volumes. Oh, so sad. Do you guys have anything else or should we get to the next section? Actually, it's Samurai Eight Hachimaru Den. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's just something on the wiki. <laughs> That's like one of the weird things that stuck in my brain last night. <laughs> Actually. Way to be that guy, Gabe. I love it. <laughs> Jordan's like, ah, oh, this guy gets it. Yeah, he does. And while David's inventing syllables and in some of the names he's pronouncing, <laughs> I am not reading names anymore. That's okay. My last episode, Jordan's handling all the names from now on. <laughs> we'll just have it like Jordan, where I'll just pause whenever there's a name and Jordan will just say it. That might not be a bad idea. <laughs> you forgot to mention that the samurai work for the Galactic Ball Federation. Oh, I forgot about the Galactic Ball Federation. Yeah, that's a super important aspect of this. They're the Federation of Balls, and I just... <laughs> fucking... I'm 12. It's great. There's a scene where the main character and the princess have to go find, like, a looker ball, which is where, like, samurai come from. So I said, Anne finds one, and she and the MC are off to go dick it up instead of pick it up. <laughs> it's called a locker ball. Yeah, sure. He called it a looker ball. Mm, this episode was actually sponsored by Looker, a great competitor to Tableau. You even mentioned that I wrote that wrong and I didn't fix it in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Any last things, or should we move forward to Wife Hill? Let's move on to Wife Hill. <laughs> Is already yawning? No, I'm not yawning. I was laughing to an incredibly stupid joke that I did not want to say. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say you are laughing in slow motion. I was thinking to myself the entire time, looker balls, I barely know it. <laughs> oh, ho, bum, bum, bum. Jordan, why don't you lead us off in a discussion about really the areas that the series just didn't do very well? So here's the thing with Kishimoto. When he did Naruto, there was a lot of, like, interesting, strange fantasy elements to Naruto and a lot of magic. Kind of works. 
Because, mm-hmm. like, everything they do, while it's magical and not totally explained, you can look at it and be like, yeah, okay, that's a ninja. I believe that ninjas can do that. I don't know what the fuck samurais are in this universe. Like, he tries to do too much. Yeah. Like, the samurai in this are closer to Jedi than they are samurai, which I realize is kind of an interesting thing, because Jedi are based on samurai, but as a result, if you're reading this and you don't really get what he's talking about, you can't use prior knowledge of what a samurai is to fill in those gaps. Because traditionally, samurai don't typically have removable spines that act as keys. They're not typically known for their ability to cut off their hands and reattach them, or manipulate matter. Those aren't things that we're used to samurai doing. So, because of that, there are times where it's very confusing and you don't really understand what the characters are talking about because the world they're trying to set up is so complicated. Uh I think all the information you need, if you actually go through it, it's all there. But it's hard to keep in the front of your mind when things are happening because it's just stuff that isn't, like, super intuitive. Yeah, and that was really, like, my biggest thing, I think, is just everything is so overly complicated and I really can tell that the author was, like, in love with the world he was trying to build. Because he really is just trying to kind of artificially tell you about it without there any sense of, like, naturality. Someone was comparing how, like, in Naruto, we didn't learn about the fundamentals of the chi system until, like, past, like, volume 10. Absolutely. And this series is, like, chapter 2 telling us about, like, all these mechanics that we just don't really need to care about because it doesn't matter right now. I mean, I think if there's one thing I can point to that is the single biggest flaw of this series, it's that. Uh And I will say, the world that he creates, it looks really fucking cool. Oh, it looks amazing. And there are moments where I'm like, oh, hey, that's kind of neat. But you have to work extra hard to figure out what exactly is happening and why it's happening. They use keys to mean, like, three different things in this series. Because you got, like, the samurai key, which is, like, their, like, soul. You have the keys that open the box. Then you have the key holder, which is your magical animal companion. And it's just like, dude, you didn't need to use key in every single term. Why is it called a key holder instead of just calling it your mount? Or just a companion. It's literally an animal you ride into battle. You didn't need to invent a term for this. That's true, because when you say key, you imagine a key. You probably don't think of a robotic spine that acts as your inner self. Yeah. Here's the thing, though, is they couldn't call it C-H-I, because then people would get so fucking confused. Like, I just thought about that now. That key is pronounced the same way K-E-Y, which is the key we're talking about, is pronounced the same as C-H-I, which is, like, the energy system in, like, half of anime. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just imagining, like, that meme where it's, like, the dude looking defeated with, like, a cigarette. (laughs) And it was, like, when the kids bop writers are trying to figure out how to make a kids bop version of WAP. (laughs) And it's just like that, where it's, like, the translator when he's trying to figure out how to translate all these keys. (laughs) You brought up something interesting there when you mentioned the translation issue. I think that this manga reads very different in Japanese, especially if you're familiar with Japanese culture, because this manga has a lot of references to ancient Japanese history, like Bushido, the way of the samurai, you know? The kind of stuff that Americans just aren't typically as well-versed in. Old Zen Buddhist religions and stuff, like Hachimaru's sensei's name is Dharma, and he's a dog samurai trapped in a cat body. When Hachimaru meets him, he says, oh hey, you look like a dharma. I don't know what the fuck a dharma is. I had to look it up. And when I did that, I learned that a dharma is a ball that is meant to resemble the founder of Zen Buddhism, whose teachings led to the creation of the Shaolin Monastery and Shaolin Kung Fu. But I mean, uh, don't quote me on that, I just looked at Wikipedia. If I was Japanese, I think I would understand these concepts a lot faster, because even if there's no one-to-one comparison, there's clearly a reason why his name is Dharma. I mean, that is obviously intentional. You're supposed to know who Dharma is, and that's supposed to help you understand who this Dharma is. But unfortunately, that makes it almost incomprehensible to an American who's not well-versed in this. 
Yeah, and I think that was one of the main problems. It's just the tropes associated with ninjas. It seems like we're just so much more approachable to the Western audience than samurai. The average person probably knows what ninjutsu is, but they might not even know what Bushido yeah, is. Yeah, but also it isn't even really the difference between ninjas and samurai. I don't think this would be as big of an issue if the samurai world was presented the same way that it's typically shown in most pop culture, you know? Mm-hmm. Naruto doesn't really have a problem with this because at the end of the day, they still look like ninjas and they're still doing things that we typically think of ninjas as doing. These ideas of there being this ninja clan that's training kids to be like mercenaries and stuff. I mean, yeah. Yeah, Naruto's a little weird when you break it down, but I mean, it still makes sense because we have some kind of frame of reference and then you can do stuff like add in new types of fighting styles. You don't have to fully explain it or anything because I mean, we get it. They're martial artists. They're assassins. They're spies. I get it. Mm -hmm. Here, it's a lot more confusing. To give you an example, one of the lines they keep repeating is this idea that a samurai is somebody who makes his decisions for himself. No, that is not what a samurai is. A samurai is a mercenary who does whatever his feudal lord wants him to do. (laughs) Yep. I definitely agree that the Samurai 8 world might have been more approachable to a wider audience. If it backtracked a little bit on the super techie, hey, we're samurais in space, but not really samurais. We do all these things with all these terms you're familiar with, but none of it's really familiar. And instead, they embraced more of a traditional, I want to say, like, rather than you have your animal companion who can either be like a space station or just like a super nice jet, I guess. A casual jet. <laughs> you could have maybe more mythologically represented animals, if that makes sense. Rather than it just being a dog, maybe it being like, uh, this is where I completely fail the Japanese mythological exam. <laughs> And I completely forget everything that's ever passed through my anime human <laughs> eyes. But you get the, the point that I'm trying to make is that they really just said samurai and gave you sci-fi. Yep. That kind of touches on what I was saying earlier. Like, I think that dogs do actually have some kind of significance in Japanese mythology, but I am not familiar with it. And I think that most Americans are also not super familiar with it. And yeah, also, if they didn't call them samurai and maybe like made up a new word or something that might cut down on the confusion because then we wouldn't constantly be like wait how is that a samurai i think the term samurai has some interesting equity and i don't know if i would have wanted to get rid of that yeah that's fair done a little bit of a better job naming locker balls just naming it the actual concept for what it does is all right i guess (laughs) i'm still not sure i really understand what they do is the problem the princesses find the samurai. So, like, I thought it was just, like, if anyone dies at any time and they have a strong enough will, they turn into a samurai, which is why people kept, like, trying to kill themselves. But then there's the locker ball, so I really don't understand how they work. On a completely unrelated note, one thing that really bothered me was the actual art itself. On a technical level, it's very strong, but it felt like there was no sense of shading or gradients, and so everything just looks like these white blobs. There's literally scenes where, like, the dog is, like, hugging him, and the background is white, too, and so, like, I can't really tell where the dog ends and the background begins. Oh, I thought it was cool. As the middle ground here, I had mixed feelings, both positive and negative towards the art. <laughs> in a lot of shots where it really didn't need to be, it was just a lot of white static. Yeah. But at the same time, it being like this white moldable technology that encompasses all life sort of just like struck a chord with mm-hmm. me. It does a good job of combining science fiction and fantasy elements in terms of the art. It was giving me heavy Mobius vibes, and Mobius is the greatest comic book artist of all time. 
time. This is not up for debate. It's an objective fact. So I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> there definitely are moments, though, where it's hard to figure out what's happening. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely a problem with this. But this is still one of the better drawn series that we've read, especially comparing Swatter <laughs> Peace Children. <laughs> God, yeah. Are you kidding me? Peace Children was definitely, like, on a technical level, just I still can't believe it was polished in Shonen Jump. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there is also one moment in particular, though, where Atta, who is, like, the bad guy who, I guess you would call him, like, the Darth Vader figure of this. Mm-hmm. He's fighting some guy, and he puts his arm out yeah. and does something to the hilt of the sword that's in his enemy's sheath, and I have been staring at it for a long time, and I have no clue what the hell is supposed to be happening. And yeah, that's a problem. Sometimes it's kind of hard to follow the art. I feel like it would translate a lot better to animation. This art style would just like be perfect to be colored. Yeah. Since there's no shading, you just take the bucket and you just click it, and you're yeah. good. <laughs> MS Paint Samurai 8 Adventure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Is that your pitch? MS Paint Samurai 8 Adventure? Yeah. I might take a couple pages and just do that and see what happens. Hell yeah. <laughs> Getting back to it, did you guys have any other elements that you feel like you want to discuss that it really just didn't do well? Where a lot of the people were. They made a lot of mention of, hey, there are samurai throughout this universe, blowing up stars, saving planets, killing people, getting things done. Here's Daruma <laughs> and Ada. Yeah, so that was one of my other notes. Is there's a lot of world building, but there's nothing that makes the world feel organic. Yeah. They talk about all these elements, like the samurai defeating evil, these princesses, but like we never see samurai actually fighting evil that's not directly related to the protagonist, really. Or like these princesses, what is like this monarchy? Why are there princesses? How does this whole system work? There's also a system of people that fight against evil that aren't enhanced. The Bushi. Yeah, and they like never really come <laughs> up. And like they have this sci-fi setting, but there's literally one alien that shows up in the entire series. It doesn't really feel like they made good use of the sci-fi stuff, rather than they could have just made everything magical. So, this isn't really sci-fi? Yeah. Science fantasy, which is like what Star Wars is? I mean, like, what this really is supposed to be is basically just feudal Japan in space. Yeah. In terms of, like, characters and stuff, there's really no character development. Can you guys say any actual character development that happened to any of the main characters in the series? Towards the end, a little bit, with Hachimaru trying to push his way through puberty and figure out how to talk to Anne. Oh, that is true. I forgot about that conversation. That was a good conversation. And then reaching enlightenment and becoming one with the universe, which is technically character development (laughs) if you want to look at it like that, but it's also just ending the series, so. Yeah, I mean, I think Anne went through some pretty significant character development towards the end. But overall, yeah, most people were static. Yeah, there is some character development with Nanashi, but it's all off screen. Yeah, for reference, when the main character gets the ability to, like, leave his house because he's not, like, dying anymore, he's like, I'm gonna go see the world by taking my dog for a walk, which was really cute. <laughs> yeah. And he, like, stumbles across this dojo, and he meets this character, Nanashi, who is this shut-in, who doesn't even, like, have a name, they don't even know what their gender is, and, like, they become friends, and, like, they defeat some evil samurai. That character, like, never shows up again. They don't join the gang. When the group is leaving the planet, Nanashi is watching them leave, and I was like, wait, they are not going with them? And then they show up in like, literally, like, the last two chapters, because they're like, oh, I've unlocked my hidden samurai potential, I'm super super powerful, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that was really dumb. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like, Nanashi shows up, like, towards the end, and is just like, hey, Achimaru, what's up? I became a samurai off screen, and check out my new key holder. It's a giant three-headed chimera. Isn't that fucking cool? Yeah. Come on, let's just defy death. <laughs> <laughs> the manga didn't even remind us who this person that literally hasn't shown up in 40 chapters was. I was like, oh, right, it, it was that guy. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's my last notice. There's so many ass pulls. I would say at least 50% of the fights, someone uses a new secret technique that was not foreshadowed in any capacity, and that's how they win. Yeah. His master, Dorama, has like five different ultimate technique Oh, that I never have talked about in any capacity whatsoever. Let me use my <laughs> super form. Let me use my secret dragon strike to defeat you instead of, you know, like foreshadowing abilities. Oh, you mean like how samurai can regenerate from any wound except when one of the guys uses the move that makes it so samurai can't regenerate from his attacks? <laughs> I do want to bring up one time where that was not the case. It was during the Battle Royale when yeah. Hachimaru used the cane in his arm as like a mantis blade. That was a cool callback. Yeah, I had that actually in my notes and Jordan's like, oh, that's too particular a moment. Cut it. Oh. So, no, I'm just kidding. That was, like, the one thing where they actually had any sort of, like, writing payoff. So, gold star. <laughs> Gabe, you mentioning how the cane move was really foreshadowed is a really good segue into talking about the elements of the series that it did well. And to be honest, I really do think it did quite a few things well. Why don't you lead us off? Because I know you fought quite highly of the series in particular. First and foremost, what drew me into the series and what I love most about it was the action. I wish I could say it was the story or the plot or the characters, but no, it was the action. Because liquid technology being able to bend into blades and guns and dogs is one of the coolest phenomena that I've ever seen in a manga. <laughs> and I've read a lot of manga. <laughs> so there's a moment where Cat Sensei Daruma is going to fight some guys in like a battle royale, and he just summons two guns. So now you just have this chubby little cat running around dual-wielding pistols and just shooting guys. Pretty sick. A Kimbo pistol-wielding cat is one of my greatest fantasies. Who's blind? <laughs> they actually respect guns quite a bit, which is rare in these kind of settings. They're like, yeah, shooting people is a perfectly valid way to kill someone. Just look him in the eyes first. <laughs> Speaking about how he's blind, I love how he makes a sniper rifle, but he's like, dude, I'm blind, so he needs to have someone be his spotter for him. That was an amazing moment. <laughs> it's the best. Despite how short it was, there were some really good emotional moments. Mm -hmm. So his dad, Furuta, when he essentially sacrificed himself to save Hachimaru, and he was looking into Hachimaru's eyes, and he was like, listen, son, you're the man of the house now. Yeah. That was a moment that spoke to me personally, just because of personal reasons, but it was a scene that evoked some emotion in me. Uh -huh. I love the relationship between Hachimaru and his father. First chapter, Hachimaru is this very weak, sickly kid. He's missing an arm and a leg. He has to be fed a liquid diet. He's hooked up to tubes. He's allergic to everything. And Hachimaru, being a kid who doesn't really understand anything, is kind of shitty to his dad. And his dad was just like, you know what? I don't care if you hate me. You're my son. It's still my job to take care of you. And I still love you. And it was really touching, actually. He definitely goes in the good Manga Dad Hall of Fame along with the dad from Golem Hearts. Yeah, I would say so. And Hughes from Full Metal Alchemist. Hughes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we'll be reviewing Full Metal Alchemist on this podcast, unfortunately. One day, maybe we'll have enough good anime dads and we'll have, like, a battle royale. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, one of the most emotionally resonant moments in the manga is towards the end when Atta, who's the bad guy, uses that move that makes it so samurai can't regenerate to cut off all of Hachimaru's limbs. And then he ties him up to tubes that look almost identical to the ones that Hachimaru was tied up to in the very beginning of the story. Yeah. And it was devastating because you followed the story. You've seen him struggle to finally get out from this apparatus 
only to be thrown right back into it. Except it's worse, because now he doesn't have his father. Now he has the guy who killed his father, who wants to torture him. It was actually very effective, I think. That was definitely probably the moment where I thought to myself, wow, this series is going to take the world by storm. <laughs> it's going to show up Boruto. It's going to get its own anime. It's going to show Dad that I was right. <laughs> Narrator, he was not right. <laughs> Another interesting thing about this manga is how it uses science fiction to kind of justify the existence of spirituality in a way. It kind of quantifies spirituality, sort of like midichlorians, but in a way that isn't terrible. Towards the end, we've talked about it earlier, but it turns into this quest to find enlightenment kind uh -huh. of and it starts asking these big questions about what it means to be alive and how your perception can completely change your reality. Like, it gets into some pretty interesting metaphysical concepts towards the very end. Yeah, I like the scene where he literally talks to God. The whole loading screen with Fudomyo. There was a loading screen. It was so good. Kind of didn't talk about that description. Does someone want to, like, discuss that moment, like the whole talking to God and loading screen thing? You know how in The Matrix, they just kind of upload every martial art into Keanu Reeves's head, and he's just kind of like, I know kung fu. They do basically that here, except what actually happens is uh, Daruma hooks his spine up to Hachimaru's spine with, like, an Ethernet cable in order to share that information. But what that winds up looking like is you see Hachimaru's spirit just kind of standing in this blank room when suddenly there's this PlayStation 3 loading screen all of a sudden just floating in midair and then God appears like actually God as in Fudo Myo'o, who is the being who created the universe that they live in. It, it starts to get into Gnosticism a bit. <laughs> this god is a lot like the Demiurge, but I'm not going to be the one to explain that to people right now. That shit's complicated. You can look that shit up on your own. But yeah, there's this interesting moment where God tells the main character, yeah, I'm not perfect either, actually, and there's nothing in this world that's perfect, and it all kind of depends on your own perception, but also that imperfection is kind of what makes makes the world beautiful in and of itself. And also save the world because it's not perfect and somebody wants to make it perfect. Yeah, the ultimate bad guy in this, like the evil god, there's a good god and an evil god. You got Fudo Myo'o and then Kala. Kala is the bad god. Kala wants to destroy the world and then put it back together in a way that it views as perfect and beautiful. Well, Fudo Myo'o is like, no, the imperfection is what makes it great. Imperfection is the best part that's beautiful. The bad back part of this manga gets a lot more philosophical and metaphysical than you typically see with this style of shonen manga. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that this series, like, the writer had a lot of good ideas, and clearly he knows what he's doing, but he just completely forgot that you have to do a lot of setup to get to these points and make their payoff work. Like, he just wanted to be payoff or explanation all the time. Well, it's not just that he didn't do setup. He tried to do a lot of setup. Yeah. But it isn't, like, super well integrated into the plot. There are moments where Dharma just kind of gives these uh, big exposition background lore lectures where he explains various parts of the world, and Hachimaru is just kind of like, wow, you really just told me a lot of stuff, huh? And I'm like, yeah, you really just told me a lot of stuff, huh? Kind of the ongoing joke for all his lectures. 
Another thing I wanted to talk about is that the art just has some fucking great moments. Like, some really amazing big clashes. There are these huge, sprawling cities. Armor looks really cool. You got these huge, uh, flying mounts. Uh-huh. Dharma's key holder is this giant turtle that flies through space. It's cool as hell. And one of my favorite moments is it shows an evil samurai destroying a planet. And then it flashes to a close-up of takoyaki, which is a Japanese octopus ball on a stick, basically. And the way that the explosion is drawn, it looks and is structured a lot like the takoyaki. And I was like, yes, that is some masterclass comic book art. That is some Watchmen shit. That's a great way to use the media. <laughs> very true. In terms of something I thought was really cool, I was actually very impressed that the Battle Royale arc, while not super important, was not like a ton of film because easily any manga could have made that like an extra 10 chapters because it's just an excuse to have fights with no context to them. Yeah. But they actually resolve it really fast. I actually kind of wish that they had had like one or two other real fights during it instead of just rushing to the, like the final group. Yeah, really the only kind of fight is when a much stronger guy fights Hachimaru in a test fight and is like, well, you're much stronger than I thought you were, so I give up. And then he arrests them because he was a space cop and entering in the tournament was illegal. <laughs> he was a space cop in what? David? Uh, I would say he was a space cop in the Galactic Ball Federation. Oh, you're right. I was trying to think what word I mispronounced. <laughs> I've trained you. That was actually pretty hilarious. Where he's like, "Yeah, so you guys all just commit a bunch of crimes, even though you defeat the big bag. So we're not gonna like put you in a real jail, but now you're gonna join us." Jesus Christ! <laughs> During that fight, one of the things that I considered to be uh, incredibly cool in manga, where it compared how quickly Hachimaru had to react to keyframes in a video game instead of like, "Oh, I've only got like 0.5 milliseconds or something like that," and that sort of video game trope, how the fights in that universe were compared to video games persisted throughout the entire manga, which I love. I really like that aspect, especially because it turns out that Daruma actually created the game in order to train people, and Hachimaru, by being confined for his whole life to these tubes, became the greatest player in the world. And when he became a samurai, a lot of those skills actually transferred. I thought that was super cool. I thought that that was a really interesting way to justify that the character manages to have some kind of skill, and he can actually win some fights because, I mean, he was really good in this VR game. It ties in well because the entire samurai, since they are cyborgs, there's actual like quantifiable metrics of how skilled they are and like what skills they know because they artificially are like learning techniques. So it was actually a very clever parallel. And also something we didn't even mention is the number two samurai that was kind of like weirdly added. Nanachi. Yeah. So they actually are the number two ranked person in the video game. And that was helping explain like first how they bonded and also like how they became such a powerful samurai so quickly. It's really interesting, actually, because the first chapter is a disability narrative. It's the story of this kid who grew up and because of health issues was confined to his house for his entire life until he magically got his wish to give him a new body that works better than everybody else's body. Yeah. It makes you think about what would you do if you didn't have the things around you holding you back. But the second chapter is a trans narrative where we meet Nanashi. Nanashi, the name means no name. Nanashi is this person who's a total shut-in, just Uh also kind of stuck in their house. But the reason why they're stuck in the house is 
crippling gender dysphoria and just severe depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like, when we first meet them, they are arguing with themselves by giving voice to their left and right hand. The the left hand is the masculine side who's like, you want to be a big, tough samurai. And then the right hand, I think, is feminine. And it's like, no, she wants to be a pretty girl, and she's always wanted to be that way. And the result is Nanashi is just suffering horrifically. But because of that, they're also a shut-in, which led them to becoming the second best video gamer in the entire world. The only way to it being a true gamer is to shut yourself into your house. They say pro gamer at one point in this manga. I thought it was hilarious. Like, I don't remember the exact thing, but it was something like, uh, you're a samurai, but I'm a pro gamer. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of moments here where they just talk about gaming. <laughs> Crack me up every single time. About to do a pro gamer moment. <laughs> Gamers rise up! <laughs> Which explains the cover art for this episode. Sounds like you guys really enjoyed the series, and I actually did myself. So why don't we though turn it to my favorite section, which is really what could have happened. The biggest thing I would have redone is actually I would have turned this into a mini series. The little style of writing, the speed of the plot until you know he really hit some stopping points, really makes me feel like this would have been awesome as like a three to five volume series where he knew how long it was going. Because you could tell that he didn't have an idea for something that could last like eight plus years like Naruto, but it would have been a really awesome like six month experience. Something like Sandland, which, um, for reference, is Akira Toriyama, who created Dragon Ball Z. He was like, I'm not going to do a super long series ever again. That was, you know, he was doing it for, you know, 15 years. So he did Sandland, which was like maybe, I think, like two volumes. And so you could really tell that it was just a great change of pace where he didn't have to worry about stretching out ideas. He could just write as much as he felt like and end the series when he felt like it reached its natural conclusion. You mentioned Akira Toriyama, so I kind of have to mention that at some point in this manga, there are two characters named Ichigo and Goku. <laughs> And, like, if it was just one, I, I wouldn't even care. I'd be like, whatever. But uh, it's both of them. Yep. So I'm side-eyeing the hell out of it every time I see it. Yeah, so for reference, Goku is the main character of Dragon Ball Z, and Ichigo is the main character of Bleach, a series we discussed a lot in our SWAT episode. And they're both extremely popular Shonen Jump. Yeah. I think that if it got the full 10-plus volumes that were intended, the ending that we got with Nanashi rushing in and Hashimaru reaching enlightenment and turning in into the locker ball would have made a lot more sense. I believe what we were shown is what he intended to be the ending, mm -hmm. but we got a very, very rushed version of it. Yeah. So I actually have a third opinion that's between you guys. Hey. Mm. <laughs> I am actually 100% fine with how this ended, and I am totally cool with not everything being explained if there is a sequel series. Because the end of this sets up Anne as being the new main character. She gets all this development towards the end. And you get this sense that, oh hey, she could be a really cool character now if she became like the main character and had to embark on this quest. Which it seems like the manga's kind of setting up, because at the very end they introduce a new series of keys, like there's Seven Samurai Keys. <laughs> Seven Samurai like the Akira Kurosawa movie. Am I right, guys? Oh. <laughs> Going off that a little bit, I think if there were to be a sequel series, it would be great if Hashimaru, who has now become basically one with the universe, ends up being like this voice in Anne's head who she can't really tell about to anybody because it doesn't make sense that she's hearing Hashimaru speak, but he keeps like praying for her. Every yeah. time she goes into battle. So people just think she's like a super naturally gifted samurai, but you know, they're in it together. Yep. 
I just think this is a really good setup miniseries. I hope Kishimoto returns to this world, and I think he might actually do that, because he clearly had a billion ideas and was really interested in the world he was building. Yeah, I think he needed a stronger editor. Like, people were saying that, you know, he's just so experienced that they were like, just let him do his thing, he knows what he's doing, but he very clearly needed someone to be like, now is not the time to use that idea. You need to have, like, a better outline. You need to flesh out your characters before you start, like, talking about this universe that you clearly are in love with. Yeah, it's like George Lucas. Yeah, he needed people around him that would say no to him like George Lucas was during the original trilogy. It's the exact same energy. Yeah, well, it's ironic because it's... uh So Star Wars inspired? Yeah, it's very Star Wars inspired. I mean, a lot of things are Star Wars inspired, but I think, like, especially towards the end, I think Pachimaru says, No, I will not try. I will do. And I'm like, <laughs> I get it. It's like the Yoda quote, right? <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, and then uh, one thing also to note I thought was funny is actually Star Wars is inspired by a samurai movie called The Hidden Fortress. Yeah. So it's funny that he made, like, a samurai series inspired by Star Wars, which was already originally inspired by samurai series. So it's just, like, a funny, like, loop. It'll come full circle. I've needed to watch that movie, by the way. Me too, because the only Akira Kurosawa movie I've actually seen is Seven Samurai, <laughs> which I think this manga clearly references a lot, even in the name. Do you want to get some context of who that is, by the way? Akira Kurosawa is possibly the single most legendary Japanese film director of all time. He made a bunch of movies that, even if Americans aren't familiar with them, they're absolutely familiar with remakes of his movies. Yes. Especially a bunch of westerns. The Magnificent Seven is a remake of Seven Samurai. Fistful of Dollars with Clint Eastwood was a remake of Yojimbo. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a bunch of movies that are direct references to Rashomon. Yeah, if you've ever seen a movie that was, like, about, like, a mysterious, like, loner warrior, like, fighting bad people, helping people, he pretty much invented that archetype in cinema. Yes! So he's extremely influential in not just Japanese cinema, but worldwide film as well. All of a sudden, Ghost of Tsushima makes so much sense. Yes, Ghost of Tsushima has a mode dedicated to emulating his style of filmmaking. Yeah, I played a good part of the game in that mode. Also, if you have ever, especially in anime, seen something where two swordsmen run at each other and they slash and then they just kind of stand there and then one falls over, that's a direct reference to a scene in Seven Samurai. Oh, man. So getting back, though, to what could have happened, I think my last note is I really, really think the series would have helped a lot if the main character was female. And I say that because as a meta note, as people have talked about, the female characters were extremely weak in Naruto. Mm. And I think as we talked about in SWAT, the fact that the main character of Soul Eater was female really helped relieve kind of some feelings of misogyny that could have happened if the series was about kind of objectifying women instead of objectifying men. So I, I just think having a female main character would have been a good way to prove that he was overcoming a very like notable criticism people have with his writing and is substantially more interesting than a lot of characters in Naruto. But again, what is her primary purpose? She is a tool that makes samurai more powerful, which still is an inherent sense of objectification very similar to Guardian of the Witch. I was thinking that when I was reading this, like, wow, this is interesting to read after Guardian of the Witch. Like, this manga I don't think hates women as much as Guardian of the Witch does. No. It's a similar kind of setup. I was actually thinking during the second chapter when they introduce Nanashi and show them uh, dealing with issues of gender dysphoria, I was like, oh shit, is Nanashi gonna be the princess? That would have been sick. Yeah, but Anne is still a fun character. 
I like Anne. Like, she has her own motivations, mm-hmm. and she also, like, isn't totally fawning over Hachimaru the whole time. And she also stutters a lot, which kind of makes her come off as kind of adorable. Yeah, she's very cute. On the topic of Nashi and what could have happened with him, I was fully expecting Nashi to end up almost like a, a Sasuke character. Yeah. Not like he'll come out the gate swinging with his edginess. No, 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 no. I meant, like, they'd link up, they would have left the planet together... <laughs> I thought he was going to join the crew right away. Didn't happen. Very disappointed. I was shocked when Anashi was like, yeah, I'm just going to hang out at the school, actually. I'm not going to join you. Yeah, no. I thought he was going to join them. And then, you know, after maybe a couple adventures or something, Anashi would get into a tiff. Maybe even over Anne. I don't know. But, you know, somehow Hachimaru and Anashi would have a tiff. Anashi would go off their own way. Yeah. And it would sort of be this whole dynamic of maybe even Nanashi joined up with the seven brothers and started trying to hunt down Hachimaru or something. Yeah. I mean, there is sort of a setup for Nanashi to be the main character's rival. Mm-hmm. They mirror each other in a lot of ways. And also it's revealed that Nanashi and the main character fought each other a lot. Yeah. Which is kind of what triggered the whole like, well, what if they end up rivals thing in my head? Yeah. I mean, again, if Kishimoto decides to do a sequel series, then maybe Nanashi will be more ex- Explored. I don't know if Shonen Jump has ever really done that, where there's like a cinematic universe. There's sometimes spinoffs. I guess My Hero Academia has something, but yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever taken a series that wasn't successful and used the same universe. And it's a shame because, you know, by the end of it, I feel like, all right, now I finally have a good understanding of the universe. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Kishimoto, he should make a tabletop game. Or a video game. Yeah. There's so many video game mechanics in there. We didn't mention it, but there's a direct moment where it's like, hey, what's up? Here's all the possible uh, moves that you can learn, and here are the stats that you need to have, and here's your actual stats over here. Like, it's an actual menu from an RPG. Honestly, I'd take a, a Sora's Wrath type video game. I won't spoil it, but the ending just has the best quick time event of all time in video games. <laughs> I don't know if I should just spoil it or not. Might as well. So Azura's Wrath has a ton of quick time events like God of War style where you have to hit buttons to not die. And so in the final boss, you're fighting like God. And so during the fight, you have these quick time events, but then God also has quick time events. And instead of the buttons, it's like these like religious symbols that he has to like hit. And so you start beating him when he starts failing the quick time events. <laughs> <laughs> it was the coolest shit. That's awesome. You can just watch the final fight if you want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> and Azura's Wrath inspired Samurai 8 game would be amazing. Azura's Hate, but spelled H8. <laughs> you know, CyberConnect22, the people who made Azura's Wrath, made all the Naruto games. Excellent. Print it. That makes a scary amount of sense. So before we kind of wrap things up, I just want to shift gears to our final thoughts, just kind of really any ideas that have come up since we're talked or things that you just didn't really have a place for that you wanted to discuss. So Gabe, why don't you lead us off? The first thing that comes to my mind would be, I think they could have made it a lot more faux-gory, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Like, I know they use the fact that they have cybernetic bodies to give an excuse to like, oh yeah, Hachimaru can totally get his hand chopped off and be fine. Yeah. But I feel like they could have made the fights a lot more serious with, you know, it seeming like the characters are getting a lot more hurt than they actually are. Uh-huh. Just to give it maybe a little bit more of a, uh, a dramatic flair or something like that. Like a body horror element? That is what I'm looking for. They definitely could have done something with that if at the end yeah. they're still robots and they're gonna, going to revert back. I don't know, because there was cool moments where like he cuts his arm off to extend his range, where if it was more gory, that, that would not have flown. Yeah. I wasn't saying more gory like they show blood with that. I'm just saying they could have done more with the decapitations, the delimmings, that sort of thing. Gotcha. 
Mm. It's kind of nice to read a manga that's pretty decent as opposed to SWAT, because guess what? This has themes, and one of those themes is the idea of being stuck in the wrong body. Uh-huh. You have, like, the trans character. You also have Hachimaru being stuck in this body that's kind of a prison for him until he gets samurai powers. But also, Dharma is a dog samurai trapped in a little chubby cat body. And towards the end, he meets his rival, yeah. who's a cat samurai, in a dog body. And, like, there's a bunch of moments like that, too. And I like that a lot because it ties back into the larger concept of everything's all about how you perceive it. And also the overall... Uh, spiritual concept that imperfection is what makes something beautiful. Yeah. It is cool, though, that you do see his, like, real form, and I like that twist how when he uses his real form, any damage he takes cannot be healed, so he has to be very careful about using his true form. Yeah. They call, like, the samurai are attracted to other samurai. It just felt like a ripoff of JoJo because they literally use the same term, which is gravity. (laughs) And I know Jordan's gonna say other things do it, but I also want to salute Araki for being, like, the OG of getting away with, like, the laziest plot convenience like he did in the 80s where he could get away with it rather than people be like that's just lazy writing but he's like nope it's just how jojo works and everyone's like well okay that sounds fair that's how jojo works yeah just the rules of the universe say that stand users encounter our stand users and have to fight instead of me having to write a logical reason of how we keep running into enemies it's akin to how um it was genius for marvel to come up with the idea of mutants yes because now they don't have to come up with a justification for why a bunch of people have different superpowers so the last thing is the final battle reminded me a ton of the final battle of Gurren Lagann. And I actually played the Gurren Lagann theme song while I was like reading it where he's like, oh, I'm going to have infinite power and, you know, gain the energy from everyone's willpower to turn into the super form to fight you. Row, row, fight the power. A lot of people who I talked to, and by a lot, I mean the two people that I talked to while I was reading Samurai with them, they had a really big problem with Hachimaru acting the way he did towards his dad after he gained his freedom. Uh How his dad was like, listen, you just got a new body out of nowhere. Please be careful. And Hachimaru would say, fuck you, dad. I'm going to be a samurai. Yeah. From their perspective, I can understand them being like, wow, Hachimaru is really just a titled little shit. But that entire time, I was thinking, if you got a body after being hooked up for your entire life to a life support machine that wouldn't even let you leave your front porch, yeah, you'd probably just start running. As soon as you got the ability to be off that life machine, I wouldn't blame anybody who just booked it in a direction. Do we get clarification on how old Hachimaru is at this point? Because, like, 12 or 13 or something. Maybe 14. I feel like 14 is the generic anime age. He's just becoming a teenager, and all this shit happened to him where it's like, oh my god, I can finally live my life doing the things that I want to do. And, oh my fucking dad, god damn it, he just wants to give me more liquid diets and shit. So, like, even if he's wrong, and even if he's being an asshole, it's you can understand why. I just feel like even online, I saw people give a lot more flack to Hachimaru than I think he deserved. Well, and there are also moments where after that happens, Hachimaru's like, man, did I go like too hard on my dad there? Yeah, he thinks on it, which is amazing because you rarely see characters actually like reflect on and say like, wait, hold on. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should have been a better person right there. I actually think that their relationship by having him be kind of a dick is more realistic to how a lot of parent-child relationships actually are, where it's like, it isn't always like super friendly, especially when like one person is suffering so much. But it's also not entirely one-sided, blatant hatred. Yeah, Hachi 
Kimaru isn't being evil to his dad. He's not being, like, completely thankless. He's He still loves his dad. It's just, it's a little more of a complicated dynamic because of the stuff that has happened to him. Still a good boy. He just has some growing up to do. And then that turns into the question, though, is Samurai 8 a good series where we turn to our final thoughts? So, with that uh, beautiful segue, as always, good job, David. <laughs> Jordan, why don't you lead us off with what your final thoughts on Samurai 8? My six-word summary is intergalactic sci-fi samurai pizza cats. I love it. Mine was also in a similar vein. This one hit me at 5 a.m., so I really hope it was as good as my 5 a.m. David thought it was, <laughs> where I said, see you later, space samurai, meow. <laughs> I was going to say, is that five? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to figure out a way to get a Cowboy Bebop reference into mine. All I got was follow your dreams, die a martyr. That's pretty good. <laughs> By a god. D- die god. He becomes god. Alright. <laughs> Why be a samurai when I can be a god? It's like the Madoka ending. Good anime. Oh, fuck. My friend's like watching that right now. Everyone should watch Madoka and watch the first three episodes before you judge the show. I'll just say that. Though, talking about our opinions on shows, Jordan, would you call this a flop or not? I don't think this is a flop. I think this is actually pretty good. I enjoyed reading this a great deal, actually. The art is, at times, breathtaking. You get attached to the characters. There's a lot of emotionally resonant moments. It tries to be philosophical in these interesting ways. I don't think it's a flop, and uh, I actually kind of recommend reading it. How would you say this compares to Chainsaw Man? Chainsaw Man's better. Yep. <laughs> How about you, Gabe? On a very personal, deep level, I don't believe that is a lot. But looking at it realistically from how it was presented, like, I love the art. Characters, they hit a pitch with me. But from, I want to say, basically the end of the Battle Royale saga, whatever you want to call it, to where it actually ended, it was too rushed to leave me with any sort of satisfied feeling. So, as of that, it's a flop. But on the inside, I think it's not. What would you recommend listeners should check out instead of reading Samurai 8? Instead of reading Samurai 8, you should read Samurai 8, but I know I can't say that, so I would honestly recommend... Naruto! (laughs) Yeah, I was gonna say, is this motherfucker gonna suggest Naruto? No, 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 not Naruto. Naruto's already been out. Read Boruto. But don't watch Boruto. Yes, because the anime is a travesty on humankind. It is a pox that must be deleted at all costs. But the manga is actually pretty bang. Don't read Samurai 8, but read Boruto. I like it. Do not watch it. The anime is foreboding. On my end, I would say this is just ever so barely crosses the line of being not a flop. More or less how I feel. Art was good. Plot was okay. Had some interesting ideas. I would have probably kept reading it just because it really was good enough, but it wouldn't have been like the top of my read list. And then in terms of Chainsaw Man, I actually think that the contrast with Chainsaw Man is interesting because Chainsaw Man really shows that a lot of the things that they spent a lot of time on in Samurai 8 aren't needed to be good. So at Chainsaw Man's art, it's, it's not very technical level. It's not very good. They don't spend a lot of time explaining the mechanics of the series, but it shows how awesome it is because it focuses on the character, it focuses on the plot, motion development, showing that you don't need to spend a lot of energy on those sorts of things to still have an incredibly worthwhile manga. I agree, but I also think you're uh, consistently too hard on Chainsaw Man's art. I actually really like it a lot. (laughs) 
but I see why. I actually have an additional recommendation, which is, I mentioned this earlier, a lot of the art seems inspired by Mobius, who is this fantastic French comic book artist from the 70s. He died a few years ago. Uh-huh. Like, if you ever played Panzer Dragoon, the design for those dragons in that world actually is ripped, like, openly from a Mobius comic called Arzach that ran in Heavy Metal magazine. He has this comic that he worked on with Alejandro Jodorowsky, who's this famously bizarre, surrealist, psychedelic spiritualist film director. If you saw Jodorowsky's Dune, which is a documentary, that's the guy I'm talking about. They put out this book together called The Inkle. The Inkle rules and the incredible art. It is extremely esoteric. There is a lot of spiritualism in there and it's also like extremely sci-fi. I just really love it a lot. It's one of my favorite comic books ever. Make sure if you look for it though, you get the version that doesn't have the new colors because they ruined it. I'm so angry about it. Oh, I hate recolors. <laughs> That's good to know. So, Jordan, how would you say this ranks against Dark Mage, which is the only series so far that we said was not a flop? It's better than Dark Mage. Yep, I would totally agree. Well, I gave Dark Mage a flop, so my opinion's pretty clear. This is the first series that we both agreed wasn't a flop. This is a Hallstone, and Gabe was here to witness it, even though he disagreed with us. I wish I could have agreed, and, you know, we could have had it all unanimous, but I agreed in my heart. Objectivity doesn't exist in art. I'm sorry. So it's like if a 7 was not a flop, Gabe, you gave it like a 6.9, and I gave it like a 7.1. Basically. <laughs> I gave it like a 7.5. Jordan's kinder than I am. Because I like the art. Yeah. <laughs> Let's turn to our last section, the shoutouts. As always, I want to give props to Jordan for making the awesome theme song that you heard at the start of this episode. I also want to give props to Aaliyah for making the episode cover, and Nigel Francis for being our generous art benefactor. I also want to thank Tim Plumidor for all his awesome work as our social media manager. And most of all, Gabe, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today to talk about Samurai 8. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, thanks, dude. This will be a good one, I can tell. You really make me feel special. I also want to give some shout-outs to everyone who's been doing an awesome job either sharing episodes or writing us reviews on iTunes. Really help us a ton be ranked higher in the iTunes store, which is where we're pulling a lot of listeners. In particular, I want to give a shout-out to people who wrote us reviews since our last episode. That one, Welder Guy, S. Owens, Andrew Sherman, Hellshake Brando, Drinking a Sprite, Subtle Doctor, someone named Emmy Kama. And if you written a review and I didn't list you, please send me a message on Twitter and I will be happy to include you on in our next list. It's pseudo-anonymous, so I really just see who's publicly listed as writing this review, so that's all the information I get. And I also want to thank everyone who shared our episode, which was Kevin LaBuzz, Ben Lee, Andrew Sherman of the Argonauts Podcast, Play Comics, Dan Bacora, and Blake Robinson, Gabe's brother, Blake. So uh, you can go thank him personally and get really mad if he doesn't share this episode. Yo, Blake, if you can hear me right now, I'm still the alpha brother. <laughs> oh, shit. Finally, I just want to give some general shout-outs. First shout-out is to the Weekly Cooldown, so you can hear his promo here. Hello, hello, hello. My name's Najee. Most people know me as Kami Jace, and I host the Weekly Cooldown. It's a podcast where we get to know the gaming news of the week, and we get to know our guest. Every week is a different streamer, cosplayer, game developer, podcaster, and overall giant nerd. We sit down, we discuss the big stories, the small stories, and everything else in between. If you want to keep up to date on the news and want to have a fun time doing so, listen to the Weekly Cooldown on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, or wherever you can your podcasts. 
The next thing I want to give a shout out to is Act Age was a Shonen Jump series that was extremely popular but got canceled because the writer of the series actually sexually assaulted a teenage girl, which upset a lot of people. And we actually did a mini episode with our guest Audrey, who was also on the SWAT episode, talking about the controversy. They have actually created a Discord community where they are trying to create an ending for the series so people can get some resolution. So I will post a link to the description below. It sounds like a really awesome project. The next thing I want to give a shout out to is the Anime Kings podcast, where they discuss all things anime to show off all kinds for anime lovers and discuss all sorts of topics, old and new. There will be a link to that in the description below. And finally, I want to give a shout out to Jakey, who was the guest on our sixth episode of Shonen Flop, where he has a podcast called A Podcast Most Foul. What's that about, David? It is a podcast about the Artemis Fowl book series where he and his wife are reading through the book series and they talk about their thoughts. And you can find them in the link to the description below. Wow, that's so great. I'm going to subscribe immediately. (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. And it was a great episode. So if you want to hear more of him, if you enjoyed the podcast, check out episode six, Dark Mage. Yeah, I would like to give a shout out to my other podcast, Mission Ignition, about vampires, a bizarre show that might actually be a fever dream, except for the fact that you can find it on YouTube, so it technically is not. Hopefully very soon, I will put out the third episode, which I have been editing for an unreasonably long amount of time. (laughs) It features me, my co-host Sham Bam Bamina, and Shoggoth from the Homo Vulgaris podcast. Keep an eye out, we will definitely be promoting that once that is out. Yes! Well, I want to thank you, the listeners, so much for joining us. You can find Shonen Flop on Facebook and Twitter at Shonen Flopcast and our website, ShonenFlop.com. We are also on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you can get your podcast. We're also on SpyTunes. SpyTunes, yes. Top secret. <laughs> this has been David. This has been Jordan. This has been Gabe. And you've been listening to Shonen Flop. Keep on flopping, floppers.